Hello, sweet summer children. You found another episode of the hit podcast, Peep This Noise. I'm Logan Johnson, and seated directly to my left is... I'm Greg Marchant. And across the country, coming to us through the airwaves in quarantine is... Nathaniel Johnson, your boy who's not sure if he's got COVID, but better safe than sorry. Yeah, we're doing our best to practice social distancing while also trying to create content. It's a turbulent time for us here at Peep This Noise Enterprises. It's a little tricky. But we definitely wanted to get together and take a second to go over uh, the media that we talked about in our last episode. I mentioned we'd be going over, which is Mr. Holmes, the BBC uh, and some other studios, I guess, collaborated on it. But the BBC original uh, starring Ian McKellen and Laura Linney about an aged Sherlock Holmes. Nathaniel, you selected this one for us, so why don't you go ahead and walk us through kind of what you like about it, why you picked it, Um, and just a reminder for people who are maybe in their first episode, we spoil everything, or at least we have so far. So (laughs) It's not so much that we spoil everything, it's just we don't refrain from spoiling anything. Because if we spoiled everything, we may as well just, like, have you watch the movie and just put a link to the movie here. Well, that's the idea, right? We would like them to watch the movie before they come and listen to our episode. Yeah, if if this is your first episode and you want to kind of join in on this discussion, maybe pause us and go and look up this movie, rent it, um, stream it, something like that, and then and, uh, then come back and tune back in because it's a good one. It might make yeah, you cry. And then you can hear how wrong we are about <laughs> yeah. our takes. And then you can argue disagree with, us with us in the comments. Yeah, in the comments of the podcast. Yeah, I was uh, say, that's not really a thing. But yeah, no. <laughs> Greg making some wild assumptions about how the internet works. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's not like that's a thing on YouTube or anywhere, right? Right. No, I just, uh, I, I just was watching YouTube videos right before I came over here. Fair enough. <laughs> and they always say like, share, and subscribe, which we would love yeah. it if you would do that. Smash uh, that subscribe please. button. Mm, smash it so hard, like you're playing uh, Super Smash Brothers. Um, no, but in this movie, uh, Sherlock Holmes is played by Sir Ian McKellen, and he is he's retired, and he's living in the countryside, and he is trying to write a memoir of his last mystery and what happened in it. Uh but it's really interesting to see Sherlock Holmes as an older character because in the United States we don't really make movies about that star the elderly. That's just not a thing we do. Um, but in in British films, you'll frequently have the elderly star in roles. So how do you think that that choice to have the elderly in films in Britain, whereas we don't do it as much in the United States, how do you think that affects... Uh, what kinds of films we make here in the U.S. compared to something like this? I mean, it's it's kind of the it's kind of the idea of what of what Hollywood is um, is a is this weird hyper uh, hyper idealized place where. Um, where all of the beautiful people live. I mean, that, that's that's where the phrase "the beautiful people" I think 
comes from in our society is beautiful people are celebrities from Hollywood. Yeah, and I think that there's this way that this is kind of baked into uh, culture in the United States, right? When you think about, uh, especially from kind of like the perspective of what media we put out into the world, what does it mean to be American? Well, it means to be young, beautiful, and constantly alive, right? Take a look at our president right now, right? He's like 72 years old. And he does sure. not look 72 years old, yeah. right? It's an no. American ideal to stay as young and attractive as long as possible, right? Um, it's just something that the society here has always taken So you're on. saying you find our president attractive. What I'm saying is that it's <laughs> obvious that our president has gone to great lengths to make himself look as young as possible, right? Ah, and I think okay. that this is... There, there's a meme that involves the color orange... And some weird right, weird white rings around his eyes. I yeah. think you might be familiar with it. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, right? <laughs> um, we tend to go through any kind of procedure, natural or otherwise, that is designed to make us look as young and as vibrant as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is it kind of bleeds into American culture in general where... There doesn't seem to be very much. There is some, but not very much pop culture about like geriatric life. Yeah. I I think just to bring up a couple more examples from politics of people who uh, of people in the U.S. who are a good example of this phenomenon, you have Ronald Reagan, who kind of had this look um, at times during his campaign where he would uh, where he would give speeches or have photo ops, and he would be wearing a nice dress shirt with the top button undone and no tie. And he he looked very much the he looked very much the movie star. In fact, he he was an actor and had acting roles in movies. And then you had um and then you have uh, um, Barack Obama, who's this uh, who's this handsome uh, who's this tall handsome guy, who's got um, who has this uh, deep, um, very impactful voice, and looks. I mean. One of the first things that I noticed about him, like a year into his presidency, is he had uh, he seemed to have gone gray quite a bit from the stress. Where I distinctly remember his hair was extremely was extremely dark and healthy looking while he was campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that was one thing that I that I noticed like uh, throughout his presidency is he seemed to gain quite a bit of gray, and which. I mean, I can understand this uh, This country is a little bit of a stressful place. But think about even yeah. in context of Barack Obama, who I will admit I think is a very attractive president. Um, <laughs> even in that context, think about like how gray looked good on Barack Obama, yeah. right? And think about the the context of, of makeup artists and people like that who, who prep him physically for speeches and the role they play in making him look strong and healthy. Now, that's important, not just in an, a capital A American sense, but in a political sense as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it reflects kind of a, a, nece- a necessity to stay young and to stay vibrant and to stay healthy to remain current in American culture. Whereas over in, over in Great Britain, the, the current prime minister is uh, Boris Johnson, who I, I saw a thumbnail of him uh, on like YouTube news uh, on like a YouTube news channel today, uh, yesterday. Oh, he just made some pretty big announcements. That's why. Oh, maybe maybe it was today. Was it about like people in Britain being like they should stay inside? Yeah, no public gatherings of two or more. Yeah, I, what? I, I it was that uh, it was a thumbnail for that. So it must have been this morning. 
Um, and he, that aside, the, uh, I'm sure people tuning in are not coming to hear our, are, are not coming here because they want to hear more about, uh, COVID-19. I'm certain they also, do not. But perhaps also, because they want to somebody break going through it. our backlog listening to this just being like, huh, they spent a lot of time on COVID-19, didn't they? <laughs> anyway, so, uh, um, Boris Johnson is kind of, he has kind of a, he has kind of a patchy um like a his skin tone is a little bit patchy and he's got kind of this squarish roundish face and 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 a blonde ed sheeran kind of haircut that just sticks up all over the place for people who saw psych he's basically the spitting image of harris trout who's the interim police chief in like the last season of that tv show or maybe in the seventh season of that tv show basically the spitting image of that character so if you can conceptualize that you can conceptualize what boris johnson looks like or you can just give it a google i guess yeah i can't even conceptualize that that's not my problem you did not peep that noise uh speaking (laughs) of noise we did peep let's circle back you wrote some more questions for us about mr yeah for us to deep dive okay so there are three main characters right there's uh mr holmes of course and then there is the boy Roger. I'm blinking on Roger, thank you. And uh, his mom, the boy's Mrs. Monroe. Mom. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Monroe. Those are the three main characters, and they are wildly different uh, age groups, which I think is one of the points of the story. I think they, I think the story wants us to have three very different views of life to see through, and they've specifically chosen age as the lens that we they want us to look through uh so how do you think though that picking those roles how do you think that shapes the story um the the best like comparison i have for it is uh is the pixar movie up okay where which is you know anyone who's seen it i think would agree that it's a very heartfelt kind of uh, a very heartfelt uh moving kind of story that makes lots of people cry um and made me tear up and that kind of thing um where you you get to see like uh where you get to see the older character remembering um remembering like things that are important to him and the and the uh good things about life because of his association with younger people um hmm. while um while the younger people are looked out for by the older people um i i don't know if you want to get into this yet but the the scene that i'm specifically thinking of is like roger and the wasps ah which is like the climactic event of the movie i think you meant the watering can and the wasps and roger yes yeah all all three of those yeah mm-hmm that um, was a subtle reference to the stories Roger's dad used to tell before he died in the war. Yeah, it was. Where he would pick three objects, <laughs> and the third one was always Roger. And he would oh. tell a story. Anyway, they called them invisible stories. It's like a two-second thing in the scene, and I had to reference it because I loved it. But It also circles back. It's like the last line in the movie. Yes, it does. It mm-hmm. comes full circle. Well, it's also it's like a good. lot of it's also like a a lot of Sherlock Holmes uh, mysteries titles. Like, yeah, yeah. When uh, you, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, when when uh, I I don't know you've have, have both of you seen Sherlock, like the, the BBC uh, not with all uh, of it. So with okay, um, what first of all fix that. Okay, but you, uh, you, you both know yeah, but like the the BBC one with um, 
Benedict Cabbage Benedict. Patch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hardest name to remember. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, yeah, that one. Everybody gets the reference to the aluminum crutch. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm, there's yeah. always an object, and there's always a person, and there's usually like a there's usually like or and sometimes there's like a third thing. Often an animal. <laughs> yeah, like the hound mm-hmm. of the Baskervilles or the speckled the speckled band. Yeah. Yeah, you you have um you have these like titles that are like that, and it's really reminiscent of that. Anyway, I think we were talking about the the characters yeah, we and their ages. Derailed, but we were ta- <laughs> you you brought up the scene with the wasps. Yeah, so um, so all all throughout the movie, Roger is kind of um is kind of cheering uh cheering Holmes Sherlock Holmes up, um and making him feel like uh making him feel like the the things that he knows are still worth knowing even though he can't remember uh even though he can't remember a lot of details even though he's going through um he's going through like the onset of some memory loss and that kind of thing um and roger we're gonna talk goes, about the memory loss we're yeah. gonna talk about that oh it's hard to talk about anyway <laughs> um if you didn't notice how I was kind of like meandering through my words getting there, it's hard to talk about. Um, yeah, Roger goes out, um, he's trying to save the the beehives and he pours water on a gigantic hornet's nest, like a three foot tall hornet's nest. And he gets stung and he gets Bit- stung a whole lot. Oh no, and, he does get stung. Sorry. Yeah. yeah he, he gets stung a whole lot by the wasps and he, uh, and he has a reaction uh, has a little bit of a reaction to it and that kind of thing, um, and stops breathing and goes to, well a lot of a reaction to it and stops breathing and goes to the hospital. Yeah, this is like the the climax of the film mm-hmm. for sure. And they yeah. and um, in that in that moment when Roger is uh, when Roger has had that happen to him, it's Sherlock Holmes that finds him and figures out what's happened so that the doctors can. Um, can give him the right treatment and save his life because they all the the doctors thought he had had an allergic reaction to bee stings which is a different thing than getting mauled by wasps which is incredibly wild because like the very first scene of the movie is when Sherlock Holmes is on the train with that other little kid and his mom is like oh he likes bees and Sherlock Holmes is like that's not a bee it's a wasp it's a very important difference I uh, <laughs> and then the film ends on this very important difference between bees and wasps it was really well done and I really appreciate that they put that in there because I have kept bees in the past and it really bothers me when people get them mixed up because wasps can all go die I hate them so much <laughs> they're they're one of my most feared uh, they're one of like my most feared parts of nature. I hate wasps. I was stung and bitten multiple times as a child, and it just bothers me so yeah. much. I got stung by some wasps in Animal Crossing. That's the only time, uh, but I can attest it was unpleasant in that as well. Yeah, they they can all go die. I I don't see them serving any important purpose except to kill our precious bees. Well, so speaking of like getting stung and bitten by wasps uh one of my favorite bits is when he's showing roger the beehives that he tends to and roger says well have you ever been stung and he goes no bees don't sting they bite yes if he's ever been bit yeah he's ever been bit bees do sting bees don't bite bees don't have wild (laughs) i don't know why i mixed that up but he he asks if he's ever been bitten and he's like no but i've been stung plenty right 
9,632 <laughs> times, if I remember right. Then right, like, he gives them comes out, and she's like, have you ever been bit? And he's like, no. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but, but, he, but he don't, which, yeah, which is great. But he doesn't just say that, though, because he's being a jerk, because Sherlock Holmes is kind of a jerk. Um, he does it because he knows that if he says yes, or if he gives her the full explanation, there's no way that she's going to let Roger anywhere near those. Like, that's so apparent in their interactions that he's like, nope. yeah, no, like, let's let's not so much override the mom's will, but let's just not make the mom's will an issue at all. Which is, <laughs> which is what I want to talk about. He does this a lot, actually. He, he, tr- he kind of undermines uh, Miss Monroe's parenting a lot. <laughs> uh, what do you guys think about that choice? To have him be a disruptive figure in the uh, family order. I actually didn't feel like he was that much. Oh, interesting. Um, it's interesting. I, From my perspective, my read on this is that he's not a disruptive figure. He's kind of the missing link in a lot of ways, right? He's definitely okay. written to be the missing link in some important ways. Like, if you look at the way that, you know, his parents have... <laughs> What does he say? He says, extraordinary children are often born to uh, rather ordinary parents. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she looks at him like, did you just say that? And he just kind of (laughs) shrugs like, eh, that's how it is. Because essentially what she did is she said it, but she like danced around it. And then he just says, you're saying that you suck and that he's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, he... He actually doesn't do very much to disrupt. There's a couple of times where he undermines, like, goes behind her back, like, especially with the bees. Like, when Roger gets stung, he's like, let's not tell your mom about this, right? <laughs> and their mom walks, his mom walks in on this incredibly clandestine hen- handshake on the agreement of, like, let's not talk about this. Um, <laughs> right. So there's times like that. But more often, you know, you see the the big argument between Roger and his mother, after which Sherlock is like, you need to go apologize because you'll regret it for your entire life if you don't. Yeah, um, I agree. He seems to less undermine and more uh, create a kind of... He, he tends to, I think, give a slight amount of structure and maybe a slight amount of momentum to what would otherwise be an incredibly fragile family dynamic. Like, it's very clear that with just the two of them there and with nothing in common... I don't think that that family dynamic would flow as easily as it does because he kind of lends a structure and, and a kind of outlet for like Roger's worst characteristics. <laughs> well, and I'd, I'd like to push back a little bit on what you said because I don't think he makes it smoother. I think he does make it rougher, but I think that by making it rough in the in Roger's childhood, it makes it so that the two of them are kind of forced to figure out their differences and learn to work together because when... When you're a parent, especially one like Mrs. Monroe, who is clearly dedicated to raising her child and taking care of her child, you will work through the differences you have with your children if you're forced to. But there are so many times where people aren't forced to make their way through those kinds of rough patches in a relationship that once the child gets old enough, they just kind of part ways with their parents. And there's a lot of bitterness for years to come, which is what Sherlock is trying to avoid in that scene where he tells Roger to go apologize, right? He's trying to make it so they don't end up with that divide. But a lot of the rough aspects of their relationship come up as a result of the relationship that both of them have with Mr. Holmes. 
I I kind of felt like just maybe a different way of phrasing it. Maybe this is just semantics, but I kind of felt like it was less that these these things happened because of um that these things happened um and became problematic because of Sherlock Holmes, but more because more that because Sherlock Holmes was there and because of his actions they came to the surface. Mm, um, yeah. The fact that Roger was still uh, was still young and had dreams, and uh, and he wanted um, he wanted more out of life than what his mother was um, than what his mother was expecting to achieve in her life. But his mother, Miss um, Monroe, did not. Mrs. Monroe did not have. Um, uh, was very much on, in the groove of playing it safe. Um, I I feel like because uh, because Sherlock Holmes was there, um, kind of bringing out these bringing out these things to the surface, like making them look at them, that they that they had to deal with them then, where I feel like they would have had to deal with them some sometime. I feel like he kind of like jerked all of their bad baggage to the circuit to the surface, kind of you know in classic uh classic detective movie fashion like you you rip up everybody's past and make it yeah make it front and center well and i think that one of the things that we can argue about this is again it's really easy i think to say like oh because these are the problems we see they would have been avoidable outside of the context of the film right take sherlock holmes out of the situation of course those conflicts don't surface in that same way but inevitably, those characters do still have those tensions, and they do still surface. It will never change the fact that Roger's an aspirational young man, just like his father was. And it was the aspirations of the father that led to the father's death in many important ways, mm-hmm. right? And so the fact that you know Mrs. Monroe is traumatized by this, I think, leads to a kind of setting where she can't naturally let Roger fly on his own, right? And that yeah. tension, without Sherlock Holmes, still boils over. Right. It's part yeah, of what I think, I think makes the plot virile and alive, right? Is that because that tension is baked into a character relationship, Sherlock Holmes, yes, is a is a part of that tension, right? In the way that like so much of, of the the he he's a symbol almost for so many of the ways that their lives kind of stink, right? Roger at one point in the argument with his mom points out that, you know, you hate your job and you're always complaining about your life, right? <laughs> And that life is a life of Sherlock Holmes, largely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he's a Which, to be fair, I would hate, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody wants to hang out with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, that's, like, except... literally the central tension of the film. Except Roger. Right? No, well, except Roger, but, like, in, in Sherlock Holmes' canon, like, and or even just any adaptation of it, there's always one character who does want to hang out with Sherlock Holmes. But that's not true in this one. Well, and this character is patently not in this film, and that's uh, Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Fact, Watson film... is the only person who wants to be around him, and he's only briefly, like, seen, like, not even his face, just, like, his arms are seen in a flashback scene that Sherlock narrates over. Well, spoilers, but Watson's dead in this one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my next question. How do you think not having Watson in this story affects this story? And how do you think it shapes and guides this story to not have Watson 
being the lens through which we see Sherlock. Well, they, okay, this is, I mean, this is explicitly said in the, in the movie that the part of the, part of the lore of this movie is that Sherlock Holmes is saying that Watson wrote fiction. Yes. This is a universe in which Sherlock Holmes actually exists, unlike ours where Sherlock Holmes is a, is decidedly a fictional character. Sherlock Holmes says Watson writes fiction. And Sherlock Holmes has no time for fiction. So the the Sherlock Holmes that we're seeing here is meant to be one um is meant to be one that's uh grounded in reality. He's he's not like Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes, who has kind of these semi-magical powers that allow us to that allow us to feel as cool as he does solving the solving the crime because we solve it along with him. We see words floating on screen that give us clues and stuff like that. Um, Which is one of the most brilliant parts of the BBC Sherlock. Series, yeah, it's it's a great show. Um, it's it's a really good show. But I mean, explicitly, the lack of Watson means that we're supposed to deal with this on a much smaller scale. That we're not dealing with the super powered, you know, brainy, like uh, incredibly genius Sherlock Holmes. We're dealing with someone who's just a very good detective and a very smart person but isn't mm-hmm. magical. Yeah, in fact, so much of Sherlock Holmes' detective work in this film is him tailing people, which is like an yeah. incredibly mundane thing to do yeah. as far as detective work goes, right? And he's the character that he tails for most of the film, which is the the young lady who whose uh, untimely death forms the, the central conflict in Sherlock Holmes' flashbacks. Uh, she actually figures out his act, right? Yeah. He doesn't take her by surprise in any meaningful way, right? Um, and that's a big deal because that's, especially, you know, in con- concert with like BBC's Sherlock or even the Sherlock that Conan Doyle wrote, this very snappy, very always on top of it character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, without Watson, this film is actually seeing Sherlock the way Sherlock is, and not the way the Watson wrote him, right? And Sherlock is still presented as a very clever, very intelligent person who is able to do some pretty remarkable things with his intelligence. Yeah, but not, but like, like, abnormally. <laughs> right, but what he does with his life, he writes a book about beekeeping. Like, what? Like, Yeah. Okay, that, that kind of brings up something. Like, that's that's a really dry way for Sherlock to spend his life. And another thing that the absence of Watson shows is how dry Sherlock is, how how much he's kind of lacking an essential, like, human feeling, which is what he says caused the caused um, this woman's untime, untimely death. I cannot remember what her name or her husband's name was. <laughs> um, but that, that's yeah, what caused them, that. I can't remember the name. Yeah, because he feels that, well, she, she offered to run away with him. Like yeah, to chase, which is wild to to chase this fantasy with someone she felt could understand how she was feeling, unlike her husband, and he felt um, that that was inappropriate um, for the situation. He felt like he could just uh, he could just you know let her go and things would go back to normal. But her reaction to the rejection um, and the and this feeling that there was no. Uh, that there was no hope left 
was um, uh, there was no hope left that nobody would ever understand her and the one person she thought would had rejected her was to go and walk in front of a train. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a really interesting thing, honestly, because um, his central regret after, you know, he kind of makes this meteoric rise out of his memory loss to remember the events of this thing, of this incident. Uh, Miss Kelmet is her name, and her husband Thank you. Is, is Kelmet as well. Um, one of the things that you realize is that, like, his big regret isn't that he didn't run away with her. Yeah. Right? His regret is that he, she had reached out and he had shut her down yeah. by, like, clinically describing what was wrong with her. Right. Okay, and now let's let's talk about that for a second because that's what Sherlock does for the most part throughout this movie. He there's two types of claims or descriptions he could make. Um, there's normative claims, which are this is the way things should be. You should be acting in this way. And there are descriptive claims. And while he does make some normative claims in the film, it's almost impossible to have a character who doesn't. He basically just makes descriptive claims of this is what's going on. And he doesn't ever try to say, like, this is the way things should be. He's just always like, nah, this is just what it is. So, like, when he says, for example, uh, that remarkable children are often the product of unremarkable parents, he's not saying, like, that that's bad or that things should be different. or He's not trying to insult anyone. He's just like, this is the way it is. Like, And mm-hmm. he does that to this woman, is he gives her a, a descriptive claim of her situation. But arguably he doesn't, right? He does in some senses, but what he actually give and gives and what the problem is is that he gives her a prescriptive claim. Yes. Right? Which is very different. He he says, you have a husband who loves you, go back to him, right? Yes. Which, you know, maybe was the solution for her, maybe wasn't, right? But, I mean, from a viewer perspective, if her husband loved her, it was incredibly warped, right? Yeah. And an incredibly twisted and possessive kind of love. Um, he had a wife in mourning and his solution was to hire a private detective because quote something was wrong with her close quote um which is incredibly uh troubling in many important senses i think i agree um yeah i don't know so i think it's not necessarily the descriptive nature of his of his kind of approach to her problem but i think it's the prescription that's the problem right once he's made a diagnosis he feels confident in telling her what the best solution is when really he doesn't know a thing about it yeah well and it's not just that this actually brings us back to one of the central themes of the film uh which is the film's final message about how fiction should be used because the whole time in the film sherlock holmes looks down on fiction as somehow lesser because it is inherently not the truth um which is what sherlock does with this woman he looks at her he says here's what's going on here's the truth of the matter go act based on the truth but by the end of the film he's changed his tune and he's like no fiction serves a purpose in helping people heal um i should have told some lie to this woman i should have told some lie to mr miyazaki i'm going to tell some lie to roger (laughs) it's umazaki it's umazaki isn't it umazaki umazaki (laughs) Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I should have told some fiction to Hidetaka Miyazaki that would be the basis for Bloodborne too. <laughs> I should um, have I should have um 
pitched my I should have pitched my ideas to Hayao Miyazaki and now they would be Holmes Moving Castle. Yeah, Holmes Moving Castle. <laughs> Can you imagine Hayao Miyazaki uh directing a Sherlock Holmes movie? It would no, be great. I can't because it would be the world couldn't handle it. It would be too good. <laughs> that would be so good. It would good. be amazing. Be Sorry. Um, um <laughs> any anyway, um Sorry, what were you going to say, Nathaniel? <laughs> I, I lost no, it. I think there's a degree to which this line of, of fiction, sorry to cut in here, but this line of fiction and nonfiction gets blurred, right? Because we understand a little bit more than they are medically, and especially with regards to mental health, than was generally understood around the end of the Great War, right? Which is when this film takes place, or I guess parts it's of it takes after II. the film is, but also parts of it are, are in between there, oh. right? In between the two wars. Sure. Um, we understand that, uh, no, in reality, no, no truth that you've created about an event is actually reality, right? Your recollection of event is, is your take on the way things happened and parts of it get cut that your subconscious deems unimportant and other parts get filled in later when you need to recall the events. And so every event is, is part truth and part fiction right it once it's in the past there's no perfect accounting of it um and i think that's a really important part to this story right because you talked about the importance of of essentially fiction and helping people heal right well our brains already have a capacity to do that in a lot of ways right to either block out a particular event which is arguably what happens to sherlock holmes in this film or to just change events to help protect us against their reality right and so there's a degree to which, like, yeah, our brains already do what Sherlock Holmes essentially decides to do at the end of this film, which is write a letter to Mr. Umazaki saying, like, your dad was an awesome dude. I remember him. He was actually a spy, which is why you never heard from him. And he was a great spy, one of the best on Her Majesty's Secret Service, right? Um, which is kind of a wild turn from a guy who who's so against fiction. But I think that it, it lends in part to this idea that, yeah, fiction can be cathartic in many important ways. I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I I do have a thought, yeah. but I'll wait and hear what you say. Go for it. I was mostly just agreeing with Logan. Okay, so um and I Okay, it's a line that I think a lot of people need to learn and I believe although I haven't read it the book uh the book How to Win Friends and Influence People talks about this too, but it's just Great a Great book. It's it's just a good um it's just a good idea um, for people to all buy into that Sherlock Holmes learns throughout this movie is that sometimes it's okay for pe- uh, for people to not be corrected in their misunderstandings of things. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a thing going around the internet right now that says go on and uh, respond to the 2020 census because that's how the government will know to know who and where you are to get you your uh, stimulus check when the when the bill gets passed. Which is complete misinformation, but I'm not going to correct people on it because they're going to go and fill out the census, which is something that they are required by law to do is respond to the census if you live within the borders of the country. <laughs> um, in reality, the, the data that the census gathers is entirely separated from your personal information um, the and is kept entirely confidential from any... Uh, from any branch of the government like it's 
no no one can go back and find your information from the census it's just they go around they uh they go around and they get people's names and information so that they can make sure they don't duplicate like double count someone and then they dump all their data into pools that they can you know they dump all that raw data in together just to get counts of stuff like how many people live in the united states hence the census so greg you're saying that if i go fill out the census that i'll receive my stimulus check Yes, go fill out the census okay. and you'll re- and you'll receive your uh, your like thousand dollars a person or whatever it is. Just wanted to make sure you weren't going to correct me there. Yeah, don't. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't ever dream of telling you that that is totally not the case. Definitely go fill out that census because it's totally the way that you'll get your stimulus check. All right, we got it on tape, boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for this segment to expire. And then I'll talk about Mr. Holmes some more. <laughs> but I, I guess, I guess my point is that there, it's not. He he learns throughout this film that it's not a bad thing for people to hold certain fictions. There are fictions that aren't harmful, whereas he kind of treats, uh, he kind of treats, you know, people's fictions, people's um, illusions that they have about themselves and others as harmful for most of the. For most of the show right and even now, in a broader sense he treats the fictions that they have as facts right there's a great sequence where he goes to meet with the um man what's the machine that they play the musical instrument oh the the glass the, uh, harp what was, the, yeah, was that that's not what they call it the harmonica the harmonica that that's what it is it's yeah harmonica mm-hmm. which is cool a spinning glass instrument that was uh, anecdotally related to like conjuring of the dead and the dark arts for many many years right um it had it had an association with um with like uh the occult thing i'm for, i'm forgetting this like politically correct term but with gypsies oh romani the, the romani the romani there we go like yeah, yeah it has an it, i believe they said it has an association with the romani and that um and a lot of people hold like hold those beliefs about the romani well, and not only that, there's there's a part to which I do agree to which the harmonica was involved in, like spiritualist movements and things like that, and other like um, what you would call like seance adjacent <laughs> parties, yeah. right? Um, and that actually is a really important part of this film, right? But there's a, a part where the harmonica instructor, who's a, a German lady who's moved to London, says to Sherlock Holmes, like, "You don't really believe that this could bring back the dead, do you?" And Sherlock Holmes says, it doesn't matter what I believe, it matters what uh, Miss Kelman believes, <laughs> right? Because that's what's going to influence how she acts. Yeah, right. right. So yeah, no, that's degree, very interesting. Huh. There's a degree to which he treats these beliefs as clinically observable facts, right? Hmm. Which is really important um, in context with the film, right? And in, in this discussion. I think it's interesting, too, how so much of that doesn't really change, Right. What changes isn't his belief that th- about fiction, right? In the end, I still think that he comes away not necessarily being in love with fiction, right? Though he alludes to the fact that he is writing some. <laughs> that he wrote yeah. his first piece of fiction. Yes, yeah. which was a letter. Which his first piece, Mr. presumably there might be others. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's the implication with the word first. What has happened is he hasn't changed his opinion on, like, I think the effects of fiction. I think he's known what it does the whole time. Yeah, that's I think true. what he's changed is his value of fiction. Yeah, that's right? a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, this idea that he's now realized that, like, oh, fiction has a place in the hearts of people, 
right. Um, you know, I'm going to go out here and say it. It's possible, totally possible, that Roger was stung by bees and not by wasps. <laughs> bees do mm. sting people, though not as a, usually as aggressively as he was stung. And there was a wasp's nest nearby, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't an observable phenomenon, right? There were observations that made it pretty easy to deduce that he'd been stung by wasps. Like mm-hmm. the fact that the medicine, the medical treatments they gave him to help the wa- bee stings... And that there were help. no, and that there were no stingers uh, left in him, and that the watering can was left over by the thing, right? Yeah. Right. But and that he had never exhibited an allergic reaction to bee stings before. Yeah. Right. And well, I don't and know. That's... I don't know that Sherlock ever thought he was stung by bees. He may okay, have, sure. but he, you know, adrenaline is a general treatment for like anaphylaxis, right? An allergic right. reaction. So, you know, there's a degree to which none of the, the actual events were not observed. Which means that even the deduction is fiction. Right? And so I think there's like huh, events like that okay. lead to Sherlock Holmes realizing the value of fiction. There's a line that, uh, sorry to go a little long on this, but there's a line that Miss Kelmet says when they're sitting in their like 15 minute park bench discussion. Where she says, the dead are a lot closer than we realize. They're just behind the wall. Is She says something to that effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, you know, you say, well, what's this film like without John Watson? Well, John Watson is in this film. He's just behind the wall. Interesting, right? yeah. In some cases, literally it's behind a cool take. the shot of the film, right? Like, literally behind the walls of the screen. Um, he's just beyond it. Just out of reach. And one of the ways that he's just out of reach is in the way that he influences Sherlock Holmes' understanding of the importance of fiction, right? Um, You know, I think we can make a strong case that John Watson is always in Sherlock's mind. In fact, after he talks about Miss Kelmet and and relives that trauma, he then begins to talk about Watson and the importance of Watson's role in kind of burying that trauma. And that's when he starts to come around on fiction. Which I think I, is really I heard, interesting. I heard a phone noise go off as you discovered your thesis about this film. It was like a congratulatory. <laughs> yes, yes, was, yes. You got uh, it. It was, was my the, phone, it was so that was my congratulations, moment. I guess. But you should understand, nice. my, I have a long and proud history of Sherlock Holmes and many theses that I've wrote which argue that Sherlock Holmes is... The, or uh, Watson is the most important part of any Sherlock Holmes story ever. So it's not surprising that's where I land on this <laughs> well, film. I'm... <laughs> I I think anybody who thinks about it will probably, if not completely agree, they uh, they would at, they would um, at least like see your point of how important Watson is. Cause, yeah, he's well, some some of my favorite moments from uh, some of my favorite moments from Sherlock, like with Benedict Cumberbatch, involve when Watson's not there, and then he shows up, and and then he shows uh, you see Sherlock do something. Uh, Watson kind of plays the opposite role in in Sherlock, which is where he, uh, compared to this film, where Sher, uh, where Sherlock is grounded by Watson in BBC's Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, like when when Sherlock goes off to confront um, confront a killer, and then Watson all of a sudden shows up and shoots the shoots the killer before Sherlock can you know take drugs from him <laughs> that may or may not kill him. <laughs> Take the red Gosh. pill or the blue pill. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. 
Maybe one of those pills would have showed him how deep the rabbit hole goes. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, um, yeah, but I, I've, you know, I've felt this way a lot, right? I think in in particular conversation with this film about Watson, you think about the ways in which, you know, the argument between Roger and his mom kind of ends after Sherlock says, you go apologize like, right now. And he does it like immediately, right? It's not like a day. Because well, he has like, so much should... respect for Sherlock is what I would suggest is the reason Wait, for that. What? He, Roger has Roger so much goes respect in... for Sherlock. No, Sherlock yeah. recommends it immediately is what I mean. Oh, oh. Yeah. like it's immediately as soon as the mom's gone, he's like, you go apologize right now. Right. And he says, like, um, he says, like, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And he's like, everyone says that is what Roger and, says. And Sherlock's and like, Sherlock. because it's true. <laughs> right. And he says, even for you. And Sherlock says, especially for me. Right. Or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Right. And, and immediately you feel the tension of it's, it's an unspoken tension as yet. It'll surface later in the film, but it's the tension of I didn't say goodbye to Watson. Because I shut him out of my Ooh. life because he wrote fiction, right? Didn't take that, but yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right on that. Read. Well, think about it. Oof. What no, does, I don't what have does, to. I think you're right. What does Holmes remember? Because at that point in the film, he doesn't remember what happens to Miss Kelmet. But he's yeah, known he the remembers. whole time what happened to Watson, right? And that's he's known the whole time Watson wrote fiction, right? Hmm. That's been the tension. That's been the argument. And so this idea that, you know, even in the ways in which... Holmes interacts with other characters. Watson becomes central, right? This, he's the act. He's the driving force behind the entire film. He's the gravity that that Holmes orbits around in so many in so many ways. Sorry, I monopolized this to write my Watson fanfic again. <laughs> my Wattpad, as one might call it. But <laughs> no, uh, no. But I agree with I, I agree with that take. That's a really uh, it's a really strong take. I think we got time for our last question here, uh, which I want. I decided to bump to the end last moment, uh, which is: Were there any parts of the movie that were particularly difficult for you to watch? Um, i i had a I had a hard time with two related. Um, two related scenes. Um, one is where uh, Ian McKellen kind of looks at the camera when, when he's being asked what um what happened that he that he regrets. Well, he he's I I believe these I might be misremembering this, but I think these events are strung together. He goes on this whole tirade about how he's here, and he's he lists out all these facts about. Uh, all of these observations about why he must be here. And then he gets to the root of it and he's like, but I can't remember what I regret. Sorry, I just tapped the table. I hope that didn't mess up the mic. It he, absolutely would have, but it's fine. <laughs> he, uh, he gets, uh, he's, but he's like, I cannot remember the thing that I regret. Um, and he like almost, he looks almost like right into the camera with this just like unsettling, like this unsettling sent, uh, expression of like despair and confusion and almost a little bit of humor, and he says something like, "And I don't have the faint the faintest idea what it was." Yeah, that that was hard to watch. Um, yeah that that was that was hard to watch. Yeah, that's a hard scene. 
and I I feel like I I I don't feel like it needs um, much more explanation than that. Just like that that progression of seeing um, of yeah. seeing Sherlock go through and show how smart he is to deduce back to exactly why he's here, except for the fact that he doesn't remember the he doesn't remember the catalyst for where he is now. Well, I think that's how the unsettling part and disturbed film. how unsettled he feels by not remembering that. That's the hard part about this whole film, right? Is seeing this character who is idolized in pop culture because of his incredible intellect lose one of his most impressive abilities. Yeah, absolutely. But not lose it completely. Like, it's just slowly going over time. And in a big way that we have to confront old age as not just, like, death is coming, but the, the deterioration of the mind and body. Absolutely. Because um, for me, I... go ahead. I was gonna say for me, the hardest scene in this film to watch is a scene where it's just him in his room alone, and he's like got his hair sticking up all over, and he's got uh, some facial hair that hasn't been shaved, and he's kind of panting, and his tongue is like sticking halfway out, and his eyes are like glazed over, and he can't really get himself out of bed, and uh, he knocks stuff to the floor and is just trapped in his own room. Um, that is the hardest part of this film for me to watch. It is burned into my mind from the first time that I saw it, and I kind of had to look away rewatching it for this. Because it's just that hard for me to watch. I think it's, I think it's difficult, and I think there's other reflections of, of kind of the difficulties of age in this film. Um, I think I landed on, landed differently on it than you guys did. This was not a particularly difficult film for me to watch. Um, I really liked this film, but I didn't find it nearly as emotive as I think, uh, especially you did, Nathaniel. Uh, I was definitely kind of caught up in, in the layers, the multiple layers of mystery that kind of enshrouded <laughs> this film. There are several layers of mystery. Um, in a kind of humorous light, the hardest scene in this film for me to watch was when he goes to... a the fallout of a nuclear land and picks vegetables out of it and then decides to eat those <laughs> um, was not vibing with that in a kind of comical way. Uh, in a more expressive and a more emotive way, the, the hardest scene for me is when he's talking to Roger and he's explaining the potential benefits of such an herb that he's been taking out of nuclear wastelands. And he starts discussing and he says, you know, it, it could help with... Uh, debilitating diseases and and arthritis and and what's what's the word uh can't remember and then he says senility and roger just stares at him blankly right and uh sherlock's like that was a witticism that was a joke right the fact that he can't remember the term for senility he knows what he's trying to combat right he knows his problem is senility and then he tries to make a joke about it and it falls so flat because it's taken so seriously and I think that there's a degree to which one of the most difficult parts of this film is is Sherlock reaches a point where, you know, and, and maybe this is linked to the central tension of this film, he reaches a point where he can't uh, defend himself with facts or with logic, and he can't defend himself with humor. And so by the end of the film, he has to defend himself with fiction, right? Yeah. He has to defend himself in, in maybe I'm overreaching the limits of the text here but think about the ways in which he's defending himself against the pain of driving watson out of his life by bringing fiction into his life right 
think about the ways in which his acceptance of Mrs. Monroe and his bequeathal of the house to her and to Roger is an attempted atonement for the things that he he did with uh, that character whose name just escaped me. Uh, Miss Gamlet, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there's so much in this way of of he has to defend himself in the end with fiction, right? And to me, that's the hardest part of this film is that his attempts at all other defenses kind of fall flat. Defenses that we all employ regularly, right? How many of us rationalize or use jokes to defend our actions? Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting. We're about out of time. Um, do you have any other quick questions you want to ask us about this? Yeah. Would you rewatch this film? And did you like it? I would, and I did. Um, I, I, I felt that there was, uh, I felt that there was a lot of, um, stuff that, um, uh, stuff that this film, um, unpacked, um, that I, that I would like to revisit again and think about more, um, and I, it's, it, it was just such a, um, such an experience to see, uh, some really good British actors, um, including, uh, including a, you know, a actual decent child actor mm-hmm. make something, uh, make something on a small scale that just hit so hard, um, hit so hard with me. Yeah. So I'd, I'd rewatch it. I liked it. Yeah, I I like this a lot as well. Rewatch probably. Um, if I was watching it with somebody who hadn't seen it before and they were interested in it, that's um, exactly where I fall on it. I um, so this is based on a book called "A Slight Trick of the Mind" by Mitch Cullen, which I will actually probably read um, because what kind of blew me away is is the way that this film is structured. Uh, the writing of this book is, or of the the film is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I alluded to the bee scene at the beginning where he's like, the difference between a bee and a wasp is incredibly important. <laughs> and I think there's a degree to to which, like, he says in the film at one point, John would have called that foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, yeah. John would have called that foreshadowing. Yeah. And it's incredible how well that's executed and how well that's performed. So I'll probably... I, I, Heck, I have some audio audible credits, and it says the audiobook won an award. So, eh, who knows? Well, we go. Maybe I'll maybe I'll check out this book. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I land on this. Uh, well, I think that's all the time we have. We've got to get back to playing Animal Crossing: New Leaf on Nintendo 3DS. But thanks so much for joining us uh, for this episode of Peep This Noise. Uh, next episode, we're going to be doing Frozen 2, a little number I selected after watching it in the theaters. I'm very excited to talk about it. It's been a Peep This Noise select since it's opening night which is pretty much when i saw it um and so i'm really excited to talk about that you should all go and watch that it's on disney plus if you want to play a subscription fee to a mega corporation that's consuming all of entertainment uh in the meantime before you watch frozen 2 go ahead and please like subscribe uh tell your friends do whatever you can do reach out to us on social media we're at peep this noise on twitter you can reach out to us at mail at peep which is our email um we'd love to hear from you Anything you can do, any small thing helps the show grow. So we really appreciate whatever you can do. Uh, We'd like to give special thanks to Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers for allowing us to use their song, 
Don't Know Why from the album California Light. That song is a banger track from a great album. Um, If you haven't been convinced by it, you have no appreciation for music built into you. Uh, Just listen to it as we fade out to it, and I'm sure you'll love it. Uh, Thanks again for listening to Peep This Noise, and remember, everybody likes bad things. Open up your mind the wind inside you think about the